Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin Sallallahu ve sellem ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem Allah müftah aleyna bi hikmetik ve enşur aleyna bi rahmetik ya da celali ve ikram Allahümme alemne ma infa'na ve menfa'na bima alemtena ve zilni ilmen ve amelin saniha Allahümme vefikna ila ma tuhibbu ve tanza ve ceallna min abidikin Es-su'ada ve emetna ala kelimetin huda Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Alright so alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, alladhi bi ni'matihi tatimmu salihat. Last week we finished <coughs> the text on Futuwa, on noble character. And this week we start the inner secrets of worship <coughs> by Ibn Qudama. Uh, Ibn Qudama who died in 689. We'll talk about this in a second. Okay, so what do you need to know as we get into this? First of all, this journey is going to take some time. If I had to guess, it's going to take at least a year. It's going to take at least a year. It's okay. I do. She has the same shoes Zakia has. Mashallah. Same ones. Uh, so, uh, it's going to take probably at least a year. This work is called Mukhtasir. In Arabic, it's called Mukhtasir Minhaj and Qasidin. Mukhtasir Minhaj and Qasidin. The summary of the work Minhaj and Qasidin. Minhaj and Qasidin was written by Imam Ibn Jawzi radiallahu ta'ala anhu and uh, Ibn Jawzi wrote Minhaj al-Qasidin which means the basically like the the method of those who are seeking God the, the, like what's the path that those who are seeking God should take Minhaj al-Qasidin he wrote this actually after Imam al-Ghazali wrote Ihya ibn din so basically the way that this happened as we've talked about before, is that in the various disciplines of Islamic studies, you have moments where, uh, well, I should say first that all of these disciplines, they, they exist in the time of the Prophet them, and he teaches them to the companions. And then what happens over time is that in the early generations, that knowledge is passed down from student to teacher, but it's relatively, it takes time for things to become organized and differentiated, okay? So you might have a teacher, you basically learn everything from your teacher in the early time. You know, you're going to sit with them every day, you're going to learn some aqidah, you're going to learn some fiqh, you're going to learn some spirituality, you're going to learn everything that you learn. And then after 20 years, you know what you need to know, you know. And then as time passes, these disciplines become more structured. So you start to have the discipline of, of hadith sciences, you start to have hadith studies, you have to have people that are specialized in hadith, you have people that are specialized in Qur'an and the various readings of the Qur'an. You have people who are specialized in fiqh, you have people who are specialized in the Arabic language, it starts to develop. And then as time passes also, the like curriculum books that are studied also begins to develop. So you have beginning text and you have middle text and you have later text. All of this is part of how the approach to how to study Islam becomes more formalized and structured and easy to deal with. So in the works of spirituality actually, it takes in some ways a little bit more time because spiritual matters are more organic anyways, right? So whereas you might want to study fiqh, it's kind of clear. Right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to learn how to purify myself, then I learn how to pray, then I learn how to pay my zakat. These are the rules to it. It's very clear. Beliefs also very clear. Spirituality is a little bit different. You might have some fundamental issues in spirituality, of course they're going to be known. You're going to have dependence on Allah, you're going to have hope in Allah, you're going to have fear of Allah, you're going to have patience, you're going to have gratitude, you're going to have all of these ideas fine, they're very clear. But how does the student actually take that from their teacher is not as clear, right? Because these are not now matters of purely theory. Right? The matters of worship and stuff like that is actually very theoretical. Right? This is how you do it, this is not how you do it. Someone tells you, okay, you should have gratitude and patience. You don't say, okay, alhamdulillah, now I have gratitude and patience. <laughs> it doesn't work like that, right? It has to be like, I spent time with the person, and they're coaching me through my development of these qualities. And then at some point, it's, it's in the other disciplines, it might be like, you studied an intro text, you finish it, they say, okay, this person understood this text. Patience doesn't work like that, right? So I'd be like, my student, I might tell them certain things, but it might take time. Someone, it might take them three to five years. And then you're like, okay, mashallah, patience. Your patience is really good now. Someone else might take them 10 years. Someone else might take them three months. Now it's very different. So the way that these disciplines were taught was remained very organic for a long time. But basically, I get my theory from my sheikhs and stuff like that. 
And I get my practice from the righteous people by spending time with them. Okay? Then when Imam al-Ghazani comes, of course there's people who wrote in it. But like if you follow our Sunday evening class, we've talked about this a lot there. And uh, you see that very clearly in Risalat al-Mustafshideen, the treatise for the seekers of guidance of Imam al-Muhasibin, you see it very clearly. He talks about everything there is to talk about in spirituality. But it's very difficult to discern what the structure is. You know? He goes from this point to the next point to the next point, then he goes back to the same point, then he comes over here again. It's very like weaves in and out. But with Imam Ghazali in particular, you have kind of like this moment in Islamic spirituality where the discipline of the study of the topic becomes very clear. Because Imam Ghazali was, you know, the Ihya, the revival of the religious sciences, which is his core book on Islamic spirituality, he wrote that later in his life. So he's already one of the greatest scholars of his time. He's already a great scholar of usul fiqh, a great scholar of fiqh, a great scholar of philosophy and aqidah and all of these kind of things. Then he brings that scholarly training to how he writes about spirituality. And then he breaks his book up into four major parts. So the first part of his book is on, starts with knowledge and then beliefs and then matters of worship. Okay, this is the first rubah, the first quarter, so to speak. The second quarter of his book is on matters of daily life. Okay? Marriage, family life, visitations, the rights of brothers and sisters, all of these kind of things. Then the third quarter of his book, he starts to get into how to rectify this condition of the heart. What is the heart? How does it get trained? How does it get dealt with? And then the third quarter deals with the diseases of the heart. And the fourth quarter deals with the good qualities of the heart that are supposed to be inculcated. And then the very end of the book is on death. What happens when you die? You know? So it's like he now laid out a very clear structure for how do you deal with matters of spirituality. The thing is, is that Imam al-Ghazali, although he was a great scholar, and you'll find these tendencies in Islamic studies, and both of them are acceptable. One tendency is like a very sober, even though Imam al-Ghazali is actually in the middle. You don't understand him as being like on the extreme. In the 90s and stuff, people used to talk about Imam al like he was some extreme weirdo. It's unbelievable actually how, how false that is. He's actually in the middle. Uh, but you have one approach that's very textual and very kind of dry. That's actually the text that we're going to do. That's, that's the approach of this text. Uh, Imam and then you have a, another side that's like extremely metaphysical and um, you know, very experiential very difficult to understand actually for many people and that, that would like be on the other side of things. Then you have in the middle like a kind of scholarly approach. Memon Ghazani represents that. That being said, his work is extensive and it includes a lot of things that are <coughs> let's say like especially for Westerners and modern people, they need a lot of explanation. Because if you understand them incorrectly you could cause a lot of problems. And that's why like, we never really usually recommend people to just pick up the works, like the translations of the Ihya and read them. Unless you're like a student of knowledge, you spent time, you have some time with knowledge, you have teachers that you go to, stuff like that, and you're serious about asking them your questions, that's fine. It's okay, you can pick it, pick it up and read it. But if you're just a regular Muslim who's picking up the Ihya and reading it, it can be quite dangerous actually. People might not contextualize things properly, they might not understand things properly. Um, and of course, these works were always meant to be studied with teachers anyway, so that it would be taken care of if you're studying it with a teacher. Right? Anyways, Ibn Jozi, he's kind of like a more stricter approach in a sense. So when he saw the Ihya of Imam al-Ghazani, and he saw how widespread it was, they're very similar time frame, almost overlapping, maybe even overlapping. I think he's one generation after. So he kind of like didn't like so much he has approach. So he wanted to make his own version. It was Minhaj al-Qasidin. Actually, it wasn't published until recently. When we were in Egypt, it was published because no one really studied that. The one that was more studied is the Mukhtasib, is the abridgment of Ibn Qudamah. So that's what we're on here. Uh, all of that is to say, that's what this book is covering. Now you know what the book covers in four parts. The translation from uh, Dar Sunnah publishers they translated this in four different books. So they split it up into four different books. The first book is The Inner Secrets of Worship. It's called The Inner Secrets of Worship. 
I read through a little bit of the translation. It seems quite decent. I'm going to try to just use the translation and not uh, bore you guys too much by reading the Arabic and then translating and stuff like that. But if I'm not satisfied, we might revert. You know, we'll see. Uh, but we'll, we'll start with this book. My goal is that we'll read all four texts, inshallah, which of course will be the actual original book, Ibn Qudamah. Ibn Qudama now is important to note about the author. Okay, Ibn Qudama and Maqdisi. This is from the famous fam Maqdisi family. Uh, the Maqdisi family was filled with scholars and righteous people. They were all Hanbali in Madhab and usually Qadri in their spiritual uh, approach because the early... This Ibn Qudama is not the famous Ibn Qudama, to be careful. Okay, it's not Muwafaq al-Din. Muwafaq al-Din is the famous Ibn Qudama who wrote Al-Mughni, who is a major, major, he's Shaykh al-Islam. He's a huge figure in the Hanbali school. Uh, this is, I think, a couple generations after him. The Ibn Qudama who was Muwafaq al-Din, him and his, uh, I believe it was his uncle, they traveled at the end of, the, at the end of their life of Shaykh al-Qadir Jinani, they traveled to Baghdad. <coughs> they're Maqdisi because originally they're from Palestine. Okay, Bayt al-Maqdis, from Jerusalem. And they were driven out of Jerusalem to the lands of Syria and Sham, Damascus, uh, when the Crusaders came. <coughs> but their family carried on this tradition of ilm. And so <coughs> they knew that Shaykh Abdul Qadir was a great scholar of the Hanbali school and a man of tremendous repute. So they traveled to Baghdad to study with him. And actually they got to Baghdad 50 days before he passed away. They stayed with him 50 days. They read Hanbali fiqh with him. They were already scholars. Okay? So they read Hanbali fiqh with him. They studied with him. They spent time with him 50 days. And he bestowed the khirqa, they say. like they put the, they, He basically declared them to be shiuch of spirituality in their own right. And, uh, and then they went back to their family. So most of the Maqtasi family, they were like on the way of Shaykh Abdul Qadir when it comes to spirituality, on the way of the Hanbali school when it comes to their fiqh. And what's really nice about that is that that means that usually their approach to these matters is very easily and widely acceptable. They're not going to really get into things that are going to be controversial. They're going to be very sober. They're going to be very kind of like middle, middle of the line. They're not going to be doing things that people are like, okay, what's going on? Or what are they teaching? Or what are they saying? You're like, okay, this is like straight sunnah. Right? It's very, very um, center-leaning spirituality, so to speak. So that's why I chose this text, and that's why I like this text. Again, this is not written by him. It's written by one of the couple generations later from the family. The family also, by the way, had a number of women who were great scholars as well, who were great scholars of fiqh, who were great scholars of hadith, and they were known to narrate hadith, and people would go to them and take their narrations of hadith and so on. Uh, this kind of setup is very useful if you're Hanbali, actually. To have a big family with many scholars and to live in like a compound with many people. They lived in a big compound. And uh, it's very useful. Because in the Hanbali school, the standard position of the school is that Salah and Jama'ah is wajib on men. Every Salah. Not, to pray Salah in congregation is obligatory on men in the Hanbali school. Every Salah. It doesn't have to be in the masjid, but it has to be in congregation. So it's really helpful if you have a big family and you live in a compound because you have someone to pray with. <laughs> Otherwise, it's very difficult to do, subhanAllah. Uh, anyways. Alright, so we'll start. Let me give you an outline of what's in this quarter. This quarter starts with knowledge, then uh, purification, prayer, zakat, fasting, hajj, Qur'an, Dhikr, Qiyam uh, al-Layl. That's this one. So my hope is that we'll get through the beginning parts and kind of like arrive at the areas that deal with zakat and fasting and Qur'an and stuff like that. Hopefully by the time we get to Ramadan. And we'll see how the timing plays out. We have like maybe five weeks, right? Inshallah. Let's see how the timing plays out. Bismillah. Uh, I'm going to skip the intro, you can read that. I don't believe in skipping intros, but I'm going to do it this time. Okay. And you should read it. You can find the PDF online. Right? But if you can, you should order the book. It's good to have. 
Alright, on knowledge. Bismillah. Qal al-Musannifu rahimahullahu ta'ala wa naf'anallahu yadun bi'ulumihi fi darayn. Ameen. Section 1, or the first foundation on knowledge. Section 1, on the excellence of knowledge. On the excellence of knowledge. Allah the Most High said, Ba'da'udhi billahi min ashtan rajim. Qul hal yastawi alladhina ya'lamuna wa alladhina la ya'lamun. Say, are those who know equal to those who do not know? We hear it all the time. Foundational concept. Are those who know and those who do not know equal? They're not equal, of course. And he said, Allah will raise those who have believed among you and those who are given knowledge by degrees. So what is the verse saying? Allah raises those who believe and He raises those who are given knowledge even further, even further levels. One of the things that's amazing that comes out of these verses from the Qur'an and these hadith that we're going to read is that you have a community actually that really cherishes learning and knowledge. And cherishes learning and knowledge not simply because you get a degree and a job by it, but because this is part of who we are. You know? So for a, a community of believers should never be functionally illiterate. Okay? We should never be functionally illiterate. In Islam or in the world. Every single person should be learning all the time. And when we balance between these two, our Islamic studies and our, our secular studies or our non-religious non studies, then we're able to see the world properly, we're able to exist in the world properly. Okay? We have to always combine between these two. As I've said 10,486 times now, many of our problems are because we don't actually understand our religion properly. Many of our problems. And many of our problems are easily solved by just putting things in the right place. You put things in the right place, everything is fine, people can live their lives. Not everyone needs to be a scholar. But as long as things are not in the right place, then people have to learn more, and they have to learn more, and they have to learn more, because it's like they have to undo everything that they learned. So slowly but surely, we have to get things right, inshallah. In his commentary on the verse above, Ibn Abbas said, the scholars have degrees over the devotees of 700 levels. The distance between each level and the one next to it requires a 500 years of traveling. So, that Allah says He raises those who believe and those who have knowledge. Ibn Abbas, who is the senior scholar of Qur'an from the Sahaba, right? You should know this. Ibn Abbas is the senior scholar of Qur'an from the Sahaba. So his statement is extremely important in commentary. He said this means, this is the, the reality of this when it says that they're raised levels, so the scholars have degrees above the devotees of 700 levels. Uh, the devotees are who? What does he mean by that? He means the people who are dedicated to worship. Right? So now you have people who are very dedicated to worship. You have people who are dedicated to knowledge. You have people that do both, essentially. And his point here is that without disrespecting people whose lives are committed to worship, that's a beautiful thing. But to know that the rank between the two is tremendous. And we've talked about this. In the first text we taught here in the Medjus, we talked about this at length, right? The core reason for that is that although a person who's committed to worship will benefit themselves, they still might not understand things properly and that might not be beneficial to anyone else. Whereas the person of knowledge is beneficial to other people. And if they have true knowledge, they'll also be a person of worship. So it's not like they didn't have both. You know, if they have true knowledge, they'll also be a person of worship. So they'll get both. So this becomes then important. Uh, again, one of the plagues that we have in our community, we have this understanding sometimes that every other discipline in life requires study and requires knowledge. But Islamic studies is just easy. And usually that's why when I teach adults, right now we're doing easy stuff, but sometimes when I teach adults, I, now I don't do it as much because when we first started the Medjus, I used to teach twice a week. On the Sunday class, it was always very general and easy. During the week class, I'd always choose things that were difficult. And actually, I used to teach two classes on a weekday night. I'd teach one text, one hour, and then the next hour I'd teach another text. This was like the early days. And they were always difficult. And the reason they were difficult is because I want people to understand, like, this is not... Uh, it's not that everything else in life is easy and... The Muslim like Islamic studies is just some like mutakhalif thing, it's super easy and like we should just put it on the side. No, it's not the way it is. It's very difficult. It takes work just the way that anything else takes work. It takes dedication the way that anything else takes dedication. You know? So uh, 
this is an important point. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also said, Only those who fear Allah from His servants, uh, from among His servants who have knowledge. This is an interesting translation. The point here of the verse is that the ones who have knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they have fear of Allah. They have fear of Allah. That's how you define whether or not they have knowledge. And we've talked about that before, right? If in, in the Quranic understanding, if a person has book knowledge, but it doesn't result in some sort of taqwa in their heart, it's not considered knowledge. It doesn't count. It has to be a spiritual benefit to the knowledge. Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan narrated that he heard the Messenger of Allah say, whoever Allah wishes well for, he gives him understanding in the religion. One who Allah wants good for them, he gives them understanding in the religion. Abu Umama reported, two men were mentioned before the Messenger of Allah a worshipper and a scholar. The Messenger of Allah said, the superiority of the scholar over the worshipper is like my superiority over the least of you. And think about this. That's a big thing. right? It's a big statement. Then the Messenger of Allah said, Indeed, Allah, His angels, the inhabitants of the heavens and the earths, even the ant in its hole, even the fish, pray for the ones who teach the good to people. So reported by At-Tirmidhi, who ruled it as Hassan Sahih. Okay, that's all from Ibn Qudamah's words. And another hadith, the Prophet said, The superiority of the scholar of the, of, of the, over the worshipper is like the superiority of the full moon over the rest of the planets. The scholars are the heirs of prophets. The prophets do not leave behind wealth for inheritance, but rather they leave behind knowledge. Whoever acquires this knowledge acquires abundant good fortune. Okay, so it's extremely essential hadith. Isn't it interesting that the very first chapter is on knowledge? What is he trying to say? You want to take a path to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have to have knowledge. There's no other way around it. We can't go closer to Allah based on ignorance. We have to go closer to Allah based on knowing what He wants from us. Safwan ibn Asal narrated that the Prophet said, The angels lower their wings in humility to the seeker of knowledge and appreciation to the knowledge they seek. The angels lower their wings to the seeker of knowledge out of humility and appreciation for the knowledge that they seek. Question is, what does that mean? He continues, he says, In his commentary on this hadith, Al-Khattabi said, there are three different views interpreting the meaning of angels lowering the wings, and they are as follows. The first view is that the angels would spread their wings. The second view is that it is to indicate showing humility to honor the student of knowledge. And the third view states that the angels stop flying and descend to witness and attend the knowledge sessions. Beautiful. All of them are beautiful, right? One of the things to learn from this is that we can read narrations and wonder what they mean. Right? This is a point. We, have, we can read a text and be like, huh, I don't really know what that means. Um, I just heard this yesterday, subhanAllah. Ah, yeah. There's a little lecture that one of our colleagues from when we were in Al-Azhar, Hafidhullah, uh, Sheikh Suhaib Saeed, Dr. Suhaib Saeed now, he's in Scotland. And... Um, he was with us in Al-Azhar. He did the College of Tafsir. Um, and he did a little talk at Cambridge Muslim College recently. It's on YouTube. It's quite interesting, you know. He also translated the Tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha from Imam Al-Razi. Imam Al-Razi's Tafsir is a huge work on Tafsir. He did the whole translation of Surah Al-Fatiha. It's like 500 pages or something. And uh, he said he's publishing soon Surah Yusuf, inshallah. But he said something interesting in his talk. You know, here's someone who... Did, went to Azhar, did the College of Tafsir, specialized in Tafsir, done translation in Tafsir. This is his whole life he spent on Qur'an, right? And there's a statement of Ibn Abbas that's well narrated, where he said, if I was to lose the reign of my camel, I would find it in the Qur'an. I would look for how to find it in the Qur'an. You know, like I would... And Suhaib, Sheikh Suhaib, he mentioned this, and he said, and to be honest, I really don't know what this means. I thought it was really interesting, you know, because this is like someone who spent his life in this. He says, I really don't know what this means. 
He's like, but I have full conviction that Ibn Abbas knew exactly what he meant when he said it. And there's layers to knowledge and there might be things that I, I don't, un there's for sure things that I don't understand that maybe I'll understand them later. So why am I saying that? Because hadith says the angels lower their wings for the student of knowledge. Someone could very reasonably read that and think to themselves, what in the world does that mean? You know? And we should know that scholars actually, usually they did that. If there was something that they couldn't understand, you know, um, they would ask that question and they would engage in it. And you'll find it in the commentaries. The issue is that we shouldn't shoot in the dark in terms of what things mean. So like in Khattabi, when he's giving this answer, uh, he's giving this answer based on tremendous and deep reading of all of the disciplines of Islamic studies and now he has an inclination to what this could mean and he's also saying other people said these are the possibilities of what it could mean okay so these are some of the possibilities the last one is very beautiful huh? states that the angels stop flying and descend to witness and attend the knowledge session so what would that mean it would mean that as we're sitting here right now there's angels that are flying around. Normally there's angels that are flying around, right? Angels are traveling around San Diego. They're looking for people who are remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're looking for people who are worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're looking for people who are seeking knowledge of the religion. And they go and they, when they find those people, they take those names to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They say, so-and-so is remembering you. So-and-so is worshipping you and such and such, right? And now we're like here, we're having food, we're having a good time, everything. And then we sit down to study but what happens when you sit down to study and this interpretation of it, then the angels that are in this area, they would stop flying, they sit down too. So they would just be like, the room, the room is filled. That's why I think that the righteous scholars sometimes, they don't care if a lot of people don't come. It's not important to them. Now one of the things we were talking about before is that you have these classes, a lot of people will teach, nobody comes to them. People teach these great classes online, 200, 500 people are listening to it. You go in person, five people are sitting there, eight people are sitting there, ten people are sitting there, you know? And it's like, what is going on, right? Shaykh Rayyan, we always say, Shaykh Rayyan, Allah yarhamu. Shaykh Rayyan, Shaykh Ahmed Taha Rayyan. Allah have mercy on him. Shaykh al-Maliki of dunya. He was like one of the greatest scholars of the entire world. And you go to some of his classes, not all of them, some of them were well attended. Some of them, there would be like very few people in the class. The Shaykh is perfectly content, living in his world, reading the text, you know, explaining what it means as if there's a hundred people there. It doesn't make any difference, right? Why? Because even if five people show up in the room, inshallah, the room is filled with angels. The angels stop flying, they sat down. And now they sit and they listen to the class. It's a beautiful thing. Abu Huraira reported the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, whoever treads on a path in search of knowledge, Allah will ease the way to paradise for him. All of this, of course, we covered in the first text. Okay? It was supposedly reported that the Prophet also said, uh, this is interesting, I'll have a point on this. Very nice. Whoever death overtakes while they are engaged in acquiring knowledge with a, re with a view to reviving Islam, with the help of it, there will be only one degree between him and the prophets in paradise. And there are many reports on this topic. This is a very interesting narration, okay? Very interesting narration. First of all, I should tell you in the beginning that this is a weak narration. In terms of hadith sciences, it's a weak narration. There's so many things to say about this, but I don't want to turn this into a hadith sciences class. What are the main points that we need to know? Number one, vast majority position of Muslim scholars throughout history was that you can use weak narrations in certain areas with certain conditions. One of the evidences of that is that here we are from Ibn Qudama. Ibn Qudama, whose family is full of Hadith scholars, whose family is full of Hanbali scholars, who are more strict on this Hadith thing in the first place, oftentimes. Or at least they're understood to be that way. I don't know if that's exactly true, but they're understood to be that way. And he's a great scholar in his own right. And the text is meant to be a text that cleans up many of the weak narrations that are in the Ihya. Okay? And yet, he still brings this weak narration. Which shows you, it's something that they considered was totally fine. But how does he say it? He says, it was supposedly narrated from the Prophet ﷺ that he said. So he gives you an indication in the wording. In the footnote, they, give you, they tell you that this is where it came from. It's actually a weak narration. You didn't need the footnote. You know automatically, by the way Ibn Qudama wrote this, that there's a little bit of issue with this narration. 
And yet, he's still bringing it because he believes that the meaning is sound. We don't have to limit ourselves to things that are in authentic narrations. If the meaning is sound, the meaning is sound. It's corroborated by other things. So what is it saying? Whoever death overtakes the person... That's funny. It's funny he said that. Last week, the brother said, the mic is going to die. Last week, the brother said, the mic is going to die soon. He had experience with mics. And he said, he said, the mic is going to die soon. I know because this is what happens before. It's, you know, cut out like this. He's like, when I came, it, it wasn't working, so I hid. And then it started working. But that means that his lifespan is coming to an end. So alhamdulillah, he told me that. So I knew that if I hit it a little bit, alhamdulillah, I brought it back to life. Hopefully we can get through the class. Um, whoever death overtakes while they are engaged in acquiring knowledge with a view to reviving Islam with the help of it. This doesn't mean that you have to preach. For example, someone could learn tremendous amounts of knowledge and never teach it in a very structured way. But they do it. And so that knowledge that they acquire would be a means of reviving the religion. Okay? Because in their behavior is that knowledge. In their behavior is that knowledge. Oh no. And baqaulillah. I don't know if there is there any other any other mic over there? I don't know if there's someone maybe I don't know if there is. <coughs> this is bad news for you. I'm not the projector. And maybe it's good news for you. You're freed from having to listen. Alhamdulillah. Come closer. All right. How much time do we have? 15 minutes? All right. I can, I, inshallah, I'll yell for 20 minutes. Or project. Teachers always say, we're not yelling, we're projecting. Like, yeah, it's a thin line between love and hate. All right. It was reportedly reported from the Prophet them that whoever seeks this knowledge with the view to reviving Islam. I don't know. This is connected to something else. Ooh, it works. Well, you came close for no reason, other than to make me happy, alhamdulillah. It's always better when people are closer. I don't think this is going to fit in that. I'll hold it. It's always better when people are closer. This is the way. This is the way. Like when our teachers teach, we sit, especially for the guys, obviously with the women, there's some level of decorum and, and uh, limitation to that. But for the guys, when our teachers teach, we sit as close as we possibly can. Some people would say like a bow's length. We saw it in the last text. It's like a, but we would usually come closer than that even. Depending on the room and how full it is and stuff like that. Anyways, whoever death overtakes, they have a, they're going to revive the religion. They revive the religion by learning the knowledge because now the knowledge becomes part of who they are. They bring it into their lives, into the lives of other people. It's a nice mic, mashallah. Uh, them and the prophets, there's only one degree between them and the prophets in paradise. And there are many reports on this topic. Some of the wise people used to say, I wish those who did not acquire knowledge knew what they are missing, for the ones who acquired the knowledge have gained everything. I wish they realized what they were missing. Actually, subhanAllah, when you get into this realm, you really feel like that. You really feel like, subhanAllah, I wish people realized what they're missing out on. Because if they're missing out on it, they would try to get it. And they would appreciate it, and they would seek it, and they would try to learn, and they would try to grow. And they would realize like how much better my life is when I know the Prophet How much better my life is when I know the companions of the Prophet When I have these pieces of information that really better how I deal with other people, how I deal with myself, how I deal with my Lord, and so on. All of those things would be very beneficial for them. So he said that they would say this. From the merits of teaching is what has been mentioned in the two Sahih collections, which are those of Bukhari and Muslim, right? Wherein Sahih ibn Sa'ad narrated that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said to Ali ibn Abi Talib By Allah, for Allah to guide one man by you is better for you than red camels. That this is for Allah to guide someone by you is better than all of the wealth in the world. Everything that you could possibly gather, 
but Allah was guiding, Allah used you to guide someone else. Make sure you understand correctly what the Prophet was saying. Don't become one of those people that comes and they say, Alhamdulillah, I guided 50 people to Islam. No, you guided zero people to Islam. Allah guided 50 people to Islam by your means. This is different, right? We don't guide people to Islam. Allah opens in Allah Allah guides whoever He wants. You don't guide whoever you want. Allah guides who He wants. Okay. Ibn Abbas said, Every living being, even the fish in the ocean, pray to Allah to forgive the one who teaches the people that which is good. In another report, the same meaning was raised to the Prophet. It's already previously mentioned. If one asks, why would the fish in the sea pray to Allah to forgive the person who teaches the people all that which is good? The answer is, the benefit of knowledge extends to include everyone, including the fish. This is because scholars came to know the lawful and the forbidden after they have learned. And the Islamic knowledge informs them to advise people to be kind to everything, including the animal when slaughtered and the fish. It is for this reason Allah inspired all the creatures to pray for their forgiveness to return the favor. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was sama'a that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said the sky was raised and we put within the sky the balance of everything. And we put that balance there and we commanded the people do not betray the balance. Do not betray the balance. And if you do so, you will be exceeding the balance and causing oppression. So the way of the Prophets, prophetic law, the way of the Prophets teaches us how to put everything in the right place. And when that's ignored, great corruption is reaped in the earth. And for better or for worse, one of the blessings of the time that we live in is that the reality of that statement is extremely clear. You know, if you lived maybe 300 years ago, 400 years ago, 500 years ago, the reality of the statement might not be as clear. But post-industrial revolution and in the modern world, the reality of the statement is extremely clear. It's as clear as day. When the, when the bounds are exceeded, everything is messed up. So you have huge swaths of plastic floating in the ocean. You have animals that are dying for no reason. And extreme weather patterns that don't make any sense. And people who are living in horrible conditions because other people deemed it necessary to live in that way. Well, it's a way that's imbalanced. It's a way that's unjust. And that's not the way that the Prophet ﷺ brought us through his example and through the Qur'an. But the person who understands the religion properly, then they'll bring balance to the earth. And that balance makes it so that everything, in the fish is an example. Everything in creation makes dua for these people. Because everything in creation is benefiting from them. Everything in creation benefits from the prophetic law. The tree outside benefits from the prophetic law. Every animal in creation benefits from the prophetic law. The heavens and the earth are in symphony with the one who's in line with the prophetic law. Even the person who's in line with the prophetic law, whose ancestors came before them and were on Islam, they also rejoice for the person who follows his way. You know, some people say, where does it come from? And so there's some narrations that say this. Some narrations that say that the person who is righteous and they passed away, the good that their descendants do is shared with them. So they're happy about it, you know. As one of our teachers recently, he said that when Malcolm X took, took his shahada, his ancestors rejoiced in their graves. It's an amazing thing to think about, huh? Because for sure Malcolm X had ancestors who were Muslim. Or many, many people have... I mean, probably if we were to like, with the mixing of, of ancestry and stuff, probably almost every African-American person in this country has Muslim ancestors. Maybe not when they first landed, because 300, or were not landed, but were forcibly enslaved and brought here. Maybe 30% were came from Muslim lands. But within a few generations, those 30% are mixing with everyone else. So probably, it's not a stretch to say, probably like every person who's African American in America has Muslim ancestry. So imagine every single time someone who's, who's from that community takes their shahada. Who's rejoicing? It's their ancestors. You know? People probably memorize the Quran. Actually, take it a step further. It's very common for people in West Africa to be descendants of the Prophet Can you imagine how many descendants of the Prophet are walking around inner cities and in neighborhoods and, and wherever it is in America and they don't have any connection to Islam? And they're from the family of the Prophet 
and Shri Haji. You know, may Allah forgive us for neglecting our brothers and sisters. Uh, so everyone rejoices. Everything in creation rejoices for the believer. If one, uh, uh, it is narrated from Abu Musa Ashari. We need to finish this section, inshallah. It is narrated that Abu Musa al-Ash'ari narrated the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said the example of guidance and knowledge with which Allah has sent me is like abundant rain falling on the earth some of which was fertile soil that absorbed rainwater and brought forth vegetation and grass in abundance and another portion of the land was sterile and the rainwater remained on its surface and Allah benefited the people with it they utilized it for drinking making their animals drink from it and for irrigation of the land for cultivation another portion of it was barren which could neither hold the water nor bring forth vegetation. The first is the example of the person who comprehends Allah's religion and gets benefit from the knowledge which Allah has revealed through me. Hence he learns and then teaches others. The last example is that of the person who does not care for it and does not take Allah's guidance revealed through me. He is like the barren land. So it is different kinds of land. And the water when it comes down, it comes down in different ways. Sometimes the land takes the water and then it gives forth vegetation. This is the person who pays attention to the knowledge and shares it with others and benefits from it. Some places it will take the water, but it doesn't give any fruit. But the water can still be used. So sometimes you have people of knowledge like this. Maybe they're not the most righteous people. They're decent, they're good, but they're not the most righteous people. You know? But they're able to pass that on to other people and they benefit from it. And the last category is people, the, the water it doesn't get absorbed into the earth. And it doesn't stay on the earth, it just floods, it creates problems and hardship. This is a person, this is the other possibility. This is a very beautiful analogy of the Prophet He said, look, Ibn Qudama says, look, may Allah engulf you with his mercy. I love when the authors do that. They do that in the old books. They tell you something, then they make dua for you. You know, it's beautiful. Say, I mean to his dua, he's a righteous person, Ibn Qudama. Look, may Allah engulf you with his mercy, how this hadith gives on the examples of the people i.e. the example of Juris, the one with understanding, is like the lands that accepted the rainwater and then brought forth vegetation, because they learned and understood, concluded and taught. However, the example of the scholars of Hadith, who work as transmitters of Hadith without being blessed with the bliss of understanding, is like a sterile land that preserved the water and so others benefited from the knowledge they had. As for the ones who heard of the knowledge but did not learn and did not preserve it, they are ignorant people. And Hassan al-Basri, may Allah be pleased with him, said, were it not for scholars, people would have become like animals. It's a severe statement. Were it, not for, were it not for scholars, people would become like animals. Sounds severe. It's true, isn't it? What do animals do? All they care about is their, their field and their food. And that's it. So this is the whole existence. It's just food and digestion and then food and digestion and food and digestion and having some offspring and food and digestion. That's the whole thing. So if it wasn't for people giving true knowledge, then this is how human beings would be as well. Mu'adh ibn Jabr said, last paragraph, O people, learn the Islamic knowledge, for learning it for the sake of Allah is piety. Seeking it is an act of worship. Mutual study is an exaltation to Allah. Pursuing it is jihad. Teaching it to those who do not know it is charity. And offering it to those who de one who deserves it is a way to draw closer to Allah. It is the affable in times of loneliness and the companion during one's seclusion. What a statement, huh? Very beautiful statement. Seek knowledge, why? Because this is piety. Then seeking it is worship. Studying it is praising Allah. Pursuing it is jihad. Teaching it to others is charity. Now everything in Islam revolves around this whole thing, all of these ideas. Uh, and giving it to someone, and it keeps you company when you're alone, and it's your companion when you're by yourself. It's beautiful. Ka'ab radiallahu said, Allah revealed to Prophet Musa salam, O Musa, learn the good and teach it to people, for I will enlighten the graves of who learns it and who teaches it, so they do not feel any kind of estrangement in their graves. That's the end of section one. Next section is section two. Seeking knowledge is obligatory. Inshallah, we'll continue from there next time. Any questions or comments that anyone has? I'd like to make questions, comments, clarifications. Anything? Yes.
Good question. MashaAllah, the Arabic language is very beautiful. Okay, Arabic language is very beautiful. One of the things that we do in English is that we know generally the meaning of things based on their order in the sentence. Right? So if you were to have this sentence, you have fearing Allah, or fear as the verb, and then you have Allah, and then you have the scholars. So if you were to just read it like that, people would understand it as Allah fears the scholars. Which clearly is not a correct understanding, right? We, we know that. So that's why it raises questions. The thing about the Arabic language is that we don't actually know the meaning of something by its order in the sentence. We know its order in the sentence by what's on the end of the word. Okay? The last... Uh, it's not always a harakah, it can be different. We know it by the change in the end of the word. So by the end of the, cha the change in the end of the word, we know the position of the thing in the sentence. So we know that the verb here is fear. Question is, who is the one who fears? And who is being feared? Right? So the verse is, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ هَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ The fatha here indicates uh, that Allah is the thing that is feared. And that's why when I read it, I didn't just stop. I said, Instead of just saying al-ulama. Because you have to make it clear here. When you have this dhamma on the end, the dhamma is the fa'il. So the dhamma is the fa'il, it's the doer. And the fatha indicates maf'ul bihi. In this case, it's not always the case, but in this case, that's what it indicates. So the actual meaning is that the ones who truly fear Allah are the scholars. The ones who truly fear Allah are the people of knowledge. So, yeah, this is good. This verse is another verse um, in the beginning of Surah At-Tawbah, I think. Uh, how does it go? Yeah. Uh, no, it's not that one. Anyways, there's a couple verses where it's very easy to make a mistake in this. These are the verses that led, and some reports say, to really codify this knowledge and make sure that people understood it so that they wouldn't make these mistakes and they would understand. So that's, that's, anyways, that's the explanation. sentence, this actually has multiple changes in it, so in a more normative sentence structure uh, would probably be something like or something like this that would probably be like the easy way to understand it because the, there's also there's also so there's multiple layers in the Arabic, it's very beautiful. It's fun. Okay, yes. Uh, can you elaborate more on just to maintain the knowledge of the Muslim jihad? Because just like my reading of hearing Allah and continuing the idea of the struggle, but I just wanted to know, like, in that context, can you share more? Sure, you speak more about the idea of seeking knowledge as jihad. There it is. Inna Allah bari'un. من المشركين ورسول لوم. Yeah, it changes the meaning if you get the harakah wrong. Uh, someone online asked which translation do you recommend? I'm reading from the whichever one I said. The, what was it? Dara Sunnah. That did it in four pieces. That one it seems good. Uh, on jihad, seeking knowledge being jihad. So actually it's interesting that the, one of the key verses in the Qur'an about seeking knowledge is also tied to jihad, actual jihad. It says that when, when a group of people go out to jihad, let another group stay behind so that they can learn the teachings of the religion and they can teach it to those who come back when they come back. 
So there's an idea that like these are the dual jihads. One jihad is to actually physically go to jihad. The other jihad is to seek knowledge. That's why uh, an accepted position in the Hanafi school is that you can give zakat to students of knowledge because they're mujahid. They're mujahid. Not just because they're faqir. They can actually be ghani, technically, in the mu'tamid of the school, and you can give them zakat because they're mujahid. But they have to mutafarriq al-ilm, by the way. Mutafarriq al-ilm. That all they're doing is seeking knowledge. Not like someone is taking 12 units in university and stuff like that. This is not full-time student, okay? It's a different definition. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, so it's a jihad. Seeking knowledge is a jihad. And what do you do in jihad? You protect the, you protect the teachings of Islam from the enemies of Islam. And what do you do in seeking knowledge? You, prepare, you protect the teachings of Islam. And so there's a level of effort and, and difficulty that comes with that. As you, as you know, as a student of knowledge, mashallah, is that it's really difficult, you know. Um, a person usually has to leave their home. They usually have to make some sort of sacrifices. They usually have to give up on their finances. They usually have to give up on their sleep, on their comfort, in order to seek knowledge. And all of that is jihad. And then to keep going in it is also difficult. You know, like real jihad. You have a battle, you feel like, okay, I don't want to do more, I want to give up, I want to do this. No, you have to keep going, you keep going, you keep going. And sometimes you have to take a break, but then you have to renew your effort. It's very, it's very challenging. The path of knowledge is, um, you know, a lot of spiritual teachers actually, they, they, they won't even take students unless they're kind of like students of knowledge. And part of the reason that, not only so that they have a knowledge base that protects them from improper spiritual practices, but also because committing oneself to learning is a serious tarbiyah in itself. You know, I've noticed that we have the seminary now in the Majlis, right? People are in the seminary and they're doing the classes and stuff. And wallahi, we made it as easy as we possibly could. And still people keep coming and they're saying, well, it's difficult, I'm behind, I'm behind, like this. The class is five hours. Like, <laughs> forgive me for saying this, but you should finish that in a week. It should be done in a week, maximum, if not a day. Like you sit down in a day, you finish a five-hour class, six-hour class. It's not very much. Just don't sleep. Sleep two hours less one day. <laughs> I'll tell you, like from the psychology, the the like as a student of knowledge, this is what you're trained on, right? Your psychology is. Let me stop the the recording, and I'm not going to tell you this for. I'm only telling you this, inshallah, may this be 